is good, there's no need to change it. No need to add to it or take away from it. If a law is good, it can stay just the way it is forever. 21st century is a generation that confused freedom for lawlessness. As if being free is to live without any law. Or in the name of freedom, we demand legal approval for whatever we want. On we go to legalize one thing after another. And because of this confusion, we've been going in circles for decades of moral homelessness demonstrated through the use of democratic freedom. We attempt to legalize everything based on what we want, when in fact we have only chained ourselves in bondage to our own temptations. And that's not freedom at all. And at the same time remain uninstructed, uninformed about the word of God and the law of God on how we should live. The aftermath of democracy, a whole generation, we think we are free when in fact we have only chained ourselves to the very things that we try to legalize because we cannot get away from doing it. We cannot stop doing it. We cannot not do it. And we even pass laws so that we can keep doing it. Therefore, we are in fact trapped by these very laws that we pass, not freed. Which, if you think about it, if we could freely legalize anything and everything whenever we want, it really defeats the purpose of having any laws at all. All it does is remove the punishment tied to it. If we live in sin and continue to sin, not ever being able to enjoy doing good or being righteous is already a punishment in itself. Substance and drug dependency, divorce and redefinition of marriage in conjunction to gender and identity. This kind of slavery by freedom is happening to us now, just as it happened to the people of God a long time ago. And since it happened to God's people before and God had saved graciously, there's still hope for us today so that we can be saved by God as well. But we have to change and we need God's help. A lawless and unanimous democratic vote can be seen very precisely at a moment in the Bible. Exodus chapter 32. The people of Israel were just newly set free from slavery from Egypt. Starting in verse 1, chapter 32. The people, many in number, like a democratic parties, saw that Moses, the leader, delayed in coming down from the mountain. Moses, singular, leader, was called by God to go up to the mountain to receive the law, later to be known as the Ten Commandments, and to deliver it to the people. There was a law being written, not yet delivered. A people without law, lawless for a moment in Exodus 32 because the law hasn't arrived yet. So there was no law. So the people thought, ah, there must be freedom, free to do whatever we want. And it was an exhilarating freedom since Israel was delivered fresh out of slavery. It's a great thing. But they also had no home, no land, no government, no law, no constitution. Moses was on the way to give them that law, the best and most perfect law ever possible dictated to Moses by the Lord God himself, the God who rescued them out of Egypt and freed them all from slavery. That's the God who gave them this perfect law. Verse 1, they said, the people, said, As for Moses, the man who led us and gave us freedom, we don't know what happened to him. So there was Moses, the same Moses God used to bring everyone out of slavery and torture, now notably delayed, 
All the people knew that he was supposed to come back, but no one knew if something happened to him, if he got hurt on the way up the mountain or got attacked by wild animals, who knows. But no one seemed to bother that he was late in coming back. So no leadership was in sight, and together they decided all the people propped up Aaron as a leader to make a new decision. And they gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Get up, as in collectively, get up, in a unified demand, saying, up and get up from sitting around, make us a new God, make us new gods that will lead us. This was the thing that everyone together demanded, new and different gods. And just like that, democracy rise up as a result of people losing sight of their leader. Great in number, the people turned to Aaron, gave him power and told him what to do. So Aaron did and said what they wanted to see and hear, verse 2 to 3. Aaron received from them riches and gold, and per the people's request and instruction, he made them their new idol, a new false god to worship. By receiving the riches of their gold, Aaron gave approval for what they asked for. Now legally empowered, even though it was not his initiative as a leader, Aaron gave his consent to allow the people's request. Democracy was working on him, and like that, democracy took on power. Freedom and democracy. Briefly for a moment in Exodus 32, a moment where the people had these two things, freedom and democracy. Freedom from slavery, democratic control. But it's not as enviable as you may think. Verse 4, out of the gold Aaron received from the people came this image, a statue of a calf, like a young baby bull. I want to come back to explain why they worship a golden calf of all things possible. Anyhow, gold was tossed together and out came this golden calf, baby bull. Still in verse 4, they, the people then said to themselves, These are your gods now, Israel. Who brought you out of Egypt? Well, that's a blatant lie. By the way, it was not Aaron who said this. It was the people themselves. Plural. Greater number. The people said to themselves, These are your gods now, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Which, again, is a blatant lie. The people claim to themselves, The golden baby bull is your god now. And just like that, the people quickly, how quickly, forgot about the Lord God who gave them freedom from slavery. Verse 7-8 to eight, God immediately declared his anger to Moses. And the wrath of God was directed at the people's idolatry. The Lord said to Moses, They have turned aside quickly, out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves golden calf and worship and sacrifice to it. And they said to themselves, Everyone listen, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Oh, Israel. There's almost an emotional grief mixed with a terrible rage and what the Lord said about his people. Oh, look at them. How pitiful. The Lord loved them, protected them, used his power to rescue them, and oh, the pity. How quickly they deserted God and turned away and put aside God like he was nothing when in fact he is everything. God was the one. He went through the troubles of ten terrifying plagues over Egypt. God protected them over their pursuers with supernatural power, set them free from torture and slavery, made them part ways with Egypt with gifts even. Free from slavery, free from torture. 
And now in a hot minute, the people, great in number, replaced God or Moses altogether like they were nothing and lied to themselves that some other thing, this golden statue thing they now idolize is what freed them. Imagine a teenager who got himself or herself in trouble for something they've done and the father goes to bail them out of jail. And imagine this teenager, first thing he gets out after getting out of jail is to disown the father and go and do the same thing again. It makes no sense. It's no wonder God becomes angry. God is righteous, fair and just. Even his anger is righteous. Freedom from slavery, democratic control, anger of God. All because the people, God's people even, were uninstructed, uninformed, and impatient about God's law. Having the right law is important. A well-constituted law that can last doesn't need to change. Receiving God's law is even the best gift possible. But why did the people of Israel make a golden calf to worship? Of all things possible, why a young calf? It's not because they want to eat beef. The bull was a prominent deity figure in Egypt where Israel were slaves. And the bull that was worshipped by the Egyptians represented fertility of land and livestock, things which provided livelihood. Like domesticated animals that would till the ground to yield fruitfulness to grow crops, the Egyptians worshipped the bull in exchange for fertile land, which young Israel grew up watching as a nation historically. The Israelites would have seen Egyptians' rituals for a bull god in exchange uh, worshipping the bull god in exchange for fertile land and numerous livestock, which they themselves lived with while in Egypt as slaves. So a young calf would seem very befitting for the young nation to become, such as Israel, to follow in the footstep of an established nation like Egypt that worship a fully mature bull. Egypt was old and strong. They worship a mature bull. Israel was young and effectively homeless. Israel was young and they foolishly followed the footstep of Egypt to worship a baby bull, a calf. But that was the wrong God for them. That was not the God who freed them. That was the God who enslaved them. And the God who rescued them was the one who easily destroyed all the prosperity that Egypt ever had in ten terrifying plagues. At the time in Exodus 32, Israel would have desperately desired a new land to call home. Because they were in the wilderness, they were in the desert. And through God's calling, Moses was leading them in it and through it, but not yet through it because they were still there in the wilderness. Israel would have wanted a new land very much to grow crops, to survive because they were in the desert in the middle of nowhere. And since Israel was now in the wilderness and without a land, they lost their livestock so to worship a God that represents fertility, fertile land and livestock would have been at the top of their list. It would make a lot of sense. But in the sight of God, this kind of worship was completely and utterly foolish. So with all the gold and riches that they had on their wrists and their ears and their hands, what good is gold? What good are these things? What good is riches if you cannot eat it? You can't eat gold to survive. So they discarded the gold and silver and gave it up and quote-unquote sacrificed these things to manufacture a god of their own for themselves to bow down to, like in a last-ditch effort to make this god so that they can 
worship it in exchange for fertile land and livestock. Industry at work. This angered the Lord who brought them out of slavery. In their hearts, the people were fully bent on returning to what they were used to, worshiping idols, being slaves, and living out their old lives like slaves. Without knowing the full goodness of God and of God's law while it was being delivered to them. Even though there was already a great and wonderful God who delivered them from slavery, protected them from pursuers, and gives them instruction with a new way to live, Israel needed a law that gives them new freedom, not the same old way of life that makes them slaves. If you are listening to this, that could be you today. The old way of sinful living is a temptation that every Christian faces. The only way out is to follow Christ ever closer, to imitate even the teaching and the way of life for Jesus. That's where true and real freedom is. Like it says in Galatians 5, 23, there's no law against the good outcome of a life led by the Holy Spirit, called fruits of the Spirit. There is no law against a Spirit-led life in Jesus Christ. No law against these good things in Jesus Christ. That's freedom. Galatians 5. Even in freedom, people's natural instinct would have led them back to the things that they were enslaved to. Seen here in Exodus 32. We may think we have freedom, democratic freedom even, but the laws which we pass in fact only lead us straight back to the things that kept us in bondage and slavery in the first place as slaves. We cannot stop it. We cannot quit it. We think we were free when in fact the, th- the very things that we do shows us that we are not free. The laws that we pass demonstrate that these are the things we enslave ourselves to voluntarily. The temptation that comes of societal democratic power is because we are no good and since we are unwilling to change, let the law change. Change the law instead of changing ourselves so that there could be some agreement. But if you could change the law at any time at will, then what's the point of having any law at all? That's just moving the goalpost. It's like after you kick the ball in any direction, you move the goalpost over there and you say that you score. It's like a child playing a game who decides to change the rules along the way he goes just so he could win. It's like lying to ourselves. We could get into heaven that way. But if anyone wants to go to heaven, then we can only enter by heaven's rules and not our own. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Those who try to enter any other way are thieves and bandits. Through the 20th century, there was the war, two world wars. Then there was a settlement and freedom and peace from war, not without consequences. Then there was forgiveness of sins announced by evangelism of the church. Wages of sin and debt to God canceled, now living to be free, spiritually free to worship God anew. Then there was the make love, not war, peace movement as a counterbalance. Then there was the sexual revolution. And the laws which societies attempt to pass today reflect exactly the same ordeal. Twisting and turning God-given freedom into self-enslaving idolatry. Today, we have our own industries, investments, earthly ideals. The riches we put together turn into idolatry just like a golden calf. There are idols made out of celebrities, idols out of sport industries, idols out of entertainment industries, idols out of wrong practices for health. When we dictate what is best for our bodies instead of stewarding our own bodies that belong to God for glory. We have idolized money, resources, precious metals and gems in the earth. 
oil industries, real estate investments in land spaces, storage of our physical bodies, industries, idolized, where people put resources together with money, investment, and funds like gold and silver of the Israelites, put together something that a generation together idolized with their hearts instead of waiting on God and listening to God or obeying God. And then in freedom, we've idolized everything else other than to worship God. These things can all become the golden calf of this generation if we disregard the law of God. Because it was never about the gold or the statue, it is our heart's attitude seen through the objects of our devotion. The only way forward is to go back to the Bible and revere the law of God in everything that we do. In the same way, the people of Israel in Exodus 32 they needed Moses to come back quick, but they also had to wait for it, for God's law to arrive. Now, I mentioned earlier, the law did not arrive yet. Moses was on the way and a way to describe the law, describe the law from God himself, as God inscribed with his very own hand what was the law of God. The people of Israel was momentarily in a state of lawlessness. There was no law. Someone may ask and say, where there's no law, there's freedom. If no law were put in place, then there's freedom to do anything. So if no law arrived in Exodus 32, then why and on what grounds did God punish them by slaying them down for their idolatry at verse 27? Well, then we have to read from Romans chapter 9. Has the potter no right over his clay? What if God chose, verse 22, to show his wrath and make his power known, having endured or Put up with, with much patience, our sinfulness. The potter has his right over his clay, and he choose to display his anger for the things he would be angry about. And that was precisely God's response in Exodus 32. Was it not God who saved these people? They belonged to him. He rescued them, and they followed him. And he's a good God. God found Israel a stiff-necked people at the time, and his anger burned hot against their stubborn idolatry. And in that moment of vacuum, God's law was being delivered and urgently needed to instruct on what is good and what is right, without which freedom that is unbridled from the law of God only leads people to their own destruction, in some democratic fashion even. And in this way, Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people let go without restraint. Where there is no vision, as in having no revelation from God like Moses had, the people will let themselves go callously to sin. But those who keep the law are blessed with joy. That's Proverbs 29, 18. The Bible said those who do not possess the law do instinctively, by instinct, what the law requires. Though not having the law, inwardly there's a law. Inwardly they do what is a law to themselves. Meaning what we do reflects what is a law to ourselves. And this generation takes it a step further. What we do, we write it into a law by democracy so that we can keep doing it. That's why God's law is an important tool, a gift even, to indicate to us what is actually wrong and what is actually right or we may not know it otherwise. To indicate what is right and wrong is the proper function of the law. The law is not used to bypass punishment or excuse our conscience. In the New Testament, the law is described as a legal foster guardian to give guidance 
until little kids mature enough to know what is right and what is wrong, what is safe and what is dangerous. Galatians 3.23 Before faith was available, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith is revealed. The law was our disciplinarian. The law of God is given to discipline us in learning what is right and what is wrong according to God. In other words, in God's hands or from God's hands, the law is used as a tool of teaching to discipline, to punish what is sin and evil. And that's good discipline. Galatians 3 says the law was for our discipline until Jesus came. Once Jesus came, faith is now available. We can trust in him, an example to follow in flesh and blood, a real person of God, not just words. Whence we were condemned and pointed out as guilty by the law before, now by faith, trusting in Jesus, we become justified, declared guiltless even. Even Abraham was declared righteous, at whom no law was there to condemn, because Abraham had faith in God first. As Paul said in Romans chapter 7, the law will always be holy and good. There's no need for any change because the law is perfect. So perfect and holy and good is the law of God that it is we who cannot live up to his standards. If we use the law in our own stubborn and selfish way, we legalize to justify our own way of sinning and to do ill. And we thought this was freedom when in fact we have only reinforced the bondage of sin and allow us to continue to do the same thing that we cannot get away from. Things that we are already tied to sinfully. Legalizing such things while not being able to get away from not doing it. It is the law that helps us form regret for the things we have done wrong. That's good discipline. And having reached the point of regret, wanting to repent, faith appears a precious, precious gift. Because then suddenly, forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is possible now because of Jesus, that through the law's strict and solemn verdict, we understand our own guilt. Being declared guiltless because of Jesus is all the sweeter. Living in the Spirit with no law against you is the sweetest of sweets, a guarantee and assured freedom. When we live in the Spirit, there is no law against us. That is freedom. If we look into God's law and say we have no sin, we are liars. If we insist on sinning and change the law to suit ourselves, then we are cheaters. And if churches change doctrines even, there will be consequences. They all reveal idolatry, something else other than God, in church or state, separated but not differentiated. God's good law has no need of changing. And God is no cheater at all. Jesus did not change or abolish the law. He announced that he came to fulfill the law to satisfy his requirement, death by punishment for every sin. Those who murder and blaspheme and commit adultery with marriage and idolize anything else above God, everyone is convicted by God's law. Even now, John 3.17 says, Indeed, God sent his Son not to condemn the world, because those who do not believe are already condemned. Past tense, the whole world already condemned by God's law. When God sent Jesus to us, word made flesh, he did not have to condemn us. We are already condemned by God's law. We are already guilty. That's why when Jesus was sent to us, he was sent not to condemn us, but instead to fulfill the law's requirement on us so that we can be freed from the law. 
after which we live under the Spirit and the law of faith. And so very early on in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained very clearly, even before he set out to do this ministry, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Yes, Jesus came to us, tempted and without sin, but do not think that he came to cancel God's requirement of the law or sweep it under the rug. Jesus came to fulfill the law and to complete God's law's requirement on us. Jesus completed the requirement of the law by dying to the punishment against sin while having no sin in himself at all, so that when he died, he died not for himself but for others. That's the gospel. And when he died without sin, he also attained resurrection to live again, so that those who trust in him, his act of dying out of love may also have resurrection, just as he lives, so that we may live to him as well. Since what good is love if we cannot live in it? What good is God's love for us if we cannot live to enjoy it? That's the love of Jesus, so great that it transcends life and death, or in Christian lingo, conquers death. The love of God is so great that it transcends even our mortality by granting resurrection with eternal life, without compromising the balance in God's checkbook for justice and punishment for sin. God anchors our morality definitely to extend our mortality indefinitely. <laughs> Let me say that one more time. God anchors our morality definitely with the law to extend our mortality indefinitely with the gracious gift of resurrection and eternal life. Thank you for tuning in. There will be a third and final part to this series, as the name of this segment implies, an intercessory prayer for current social affairs. Peace.